It's Frank and Chipper, here we go. It's time for some real talk, let's start the show. We're bringing all things cannabis to you. Political, pregnancy, and race issues. Take control of your health and of your life. With Frank and Chipper, let's do it right. Hi, sister. Hi, how's it going? Good. You got tan this weekend. Yeah. Um, it's nice out for sure. Yeah. Can't tell what I look like because I'm in a dark hole. <laughs> <laughs> you are. <sighs> Yesterday when I was on the phone with you and I had to hang up, Kristen projectile vomited all over the backseat of the car and the toys, they had dolls and trinkets and shoes and everything on the floor and it went all over all of those things <laughs> and Olivia was crying Emma Emma like her doll because <laughs> it was all in her hair and this doll's got so much hair <laughs> and and even went inside the vents like uh, oh in the back God. seat yeah it what was happened not fun. did she just didn't car sick I guess I don't know if it was a virus. Maybe it was something they ate. And maybe it was just my driving and they got car sick. Anyway, it was not fun, but we lived through it. And I managed, I was lucky enough to have had a package of like disinfecting wipes in the car, almost a full package. And I don't know, I had a whole box of, I had a box for stuff. I just dumped out like all these things to, cause I had no bags. And so I had this box of barf items to take home and clean up later and well, I scrubbed out um, the back seat with a whole bag of wipes yeah the but, last thing I heard was oh yep she's throwing up yeah <laughs> and you're like I gotta go oh yeah no it was bad I was handing her a bag right as she was yeah she got the bag and didn't make it so poor girl yeah yeah it's not fun for her or for me and it started to rain at the, at Jesus. the end of, <laughs> I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> uh, no, but all in all, I was proud of myself. I kept my cool, just, you know, did the mom thing, yeah. cleaned it up, got it done, got out of there yeah. and kept the windows down for the rest of the way <laughs> in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> You're sticking your head out like Ace Ventura. <laughs> if that's not a picture of mom life from some... <laughs> sitcom or comedy movie I know uh, right heading with the windows down the rain pouring in <laughs> jamming out to music like it's all okay <laughs> the kids are all bawling in the back <laughs> you're yeah. just ignoring it all just all the road in <laughs> yeah jamming out uh <laughs> that's funny oh shit <clears throat> Okay, so let's talk about religion a little bit. Oh my gosh. It, so where are you at? Or wait, we should probably say, welcome to Frank and Chipper. I'm Kristen. I'm Kim. Our episode this week is on high demand religion, the shame that can kind of come along with that and how to handle it. We talked with Terry Hales, which was great. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with her. Uh, she's a religious trauma therapist who is yeah. based out of Colorado. Mm -hmm. 
and she sees people all over the country so yeah um, yep I was surprised to hear that in the interview I think this interview kind of hits home with with Kim and I because you can correct me if I'm wrong we're going through our own deconstruction of the religion we were brought up in which is Christianity um mainly remember going to a Wesleyan church but remember mom and dad being part of the youth group when Nathan and I were little at um the Methodist church yeah I think I vaguely remember that I think I well, we went to the Christian schools as younger I think I received a little I less forget that I don't know um, why but I'm pretty sure that's where a lot of my religious trauma came yeah. from yes <laughs> maybe it, it's because um, I'm blocking it out <laughs> It bothers me thinking back about it. It's come up lately. And yeah, some of my hardest, most difficult childhood years were during going to Christian mm-hmm. academies or, um, yeah, a Christian uh, private school. For you sure. and Nathan went through like 10th grade, right? 10th, 11th grade? I went to the middle of ninth grade. And then Nathan was in the middle of 10th grade when we transferred to public school. And it was culture shock. Mm. for sure yeah yeah, that's interesting I always forget that like we were yeah really ingrained in religion I always think when people ask oh were you from like a strict religious family I'm like no not really but then I'm like I guess we kind of were yeah I kind of think of us somewhere down the middle a little bit because I I always when I look back now we I look back Bible and think, thumpers. no and I think I we were always the not that great Christians family we were yeah. always the ones that like didn't do prayer at home and <laughs> right. Bible verses and Bible studies all the time um I think we were involved with the church a lot went to church talked about God and that was the structure of our um, morals or values yeah code and parenting mm-hmm. um but yeah there is a piece of it that you know we weren't I don't know we just weren't that Christian family I guess in my mind it seems yeah. like that but now I think oh my gosh but we were that Christian family to some other family you know right. I don't uh, exactly and yeah. how sad is it that we're measuring ourselves that we weren't not that good Christians like, where does that even come from? Where does that judgment, you know, and it comes from the Mm -hmm. church and it comes from the people in the church. And I think that that's so sad. And one of the things I'm struggling with is we're not, you know, we're taught as Christians not to judge and leave judgment up to God. And, but yet we walk around and act like we have the answer and we're righteous and anybody else who doesn't believe the same as us is completely you know damned to hell but Jesus sometimes considered <laughs> yeah but Jesus loves you, loves you. Mm-hmm. You're, we're like, all his children but like some people are dangerous I don't yeah and so yeah that's just not sticking well with me yeah I, I don't know I think more and more about yeah how we're raised in it and oh man yeah it, it freaks me out for sure a little bit. 
<laughs> it, it makes it me does. feel makes me feel sick sometimes <laughs> you know I just am like wow and wow because I think we're seeing how much it shaped all the choices in our lives and why we're at where we're at today mm-hmm. yeah yeah anyway we're getting I'm <laughs> getting long ended <laughs> <laughs> getting serious I know yeah it is serious though okay so shall we dive into the interview sure let's go I saw you celebrated some downloads, how 1,500? Yeah, 1,500 now. And we've been going since mid-January, so. That's so great. Yeah, and it's called Emancipate Your Mind, and it's for people going through religious transition and trauma. So it's a, a recovery podcast for people healing from religious transition and trauma. So you are a, like, registered therapist. You went to no. school? No. I am a certified life coach. Okay. Yeah. Okay. My husband is a licensed therapist. Okay. I almost went that route. I have the same bachelor's degree as him, and I practically did his master's degree with him. Like, we read all the books together, and when he was doing his papers, I'm the one that proofread all of his papers before he submit- submitted them, but I didn't get the degree. He did. So... Yeah. Got the information. Yeah. Yeah. I got the information. He got the degree. So I thought about going back and getting a master's degree, but then I would be constrained to Colorado only. I would only be able to practice in Colorado. I wouldn't be able to help anyone anywhere else. And I have clients all over the globe. So yeah, I have a client in England. I have one in Japan. The rest of them are all over the U.S. So yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, it just made more sense to be a coach. Eventually I may go back and get a PhD just for research purposes. I don't know, but right now it just doesn't feel like a priority. Yeah. So I have a bachelor's degree in marriage, family, and human development. And then I'm a certified, I'm a certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, basically certified life coach. And I have trauma certifications. Okay. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So I went to two different schools, like two different places to get trauma certifications so that I'd be able to handle trauma. Were they at like universities that you took these specific classes or certifications? It's not through universities. A lot of times life coaches will get their certifications through life coaching institutes that are certified by an international board. Because life coaching is in this kind of gray area, it's a new kind of a new field a lot of universities don't have classes for life coaches yet. They may eventually in the future. I would imagine there will be some regulation at some point in the future. But right now, it's it, it's more through, I, I go through certified. Yeah. Like, certified and you did your trauma, trauma through that same place? Yeah. So I got trauma certifications through, yeah. Yeah. So I did like a course on specifically on just general trauma and then one specifically actually on sexual trauma. I just, I just yeah, we both made we the both same lean back when you said, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, the reason I did the sexual trauma one is I did general trauma because there is no no religious trauma anything out there. I can only find 25 coaches or therapists in the whole world that deal with religious trauma specifically or that at least claim it in public. I think there are specialty. This is like, come to me for this. Yeah. That was part of the other reason I didn't get 
like I didn't go back to school to get licensure because I just would have gotten a general licensure and I would have to do all of what I'm doing right now on my own anyway. So they're only just now starting to kind of consider religious trauma in the therapy world. The, the, the term religious trauma syndrome really only showed up in 2011 because of Dr. Winnell and her work. So Marlene Winnell has kind of, she's a, a therapist that kind of paved the way for this, but people are still, it's, therapists are going to debate for the next 10, 20, 30 years on whether it's a relevant diagnosis, if it should par be part of the DCM or not. So it, it's, it, I don't want to wait that long to help people. So like, that's why I'm, I chose the route I did. Yeah. And so what led you to like, for the need to help people in that, like, that you wanted to specialize in religious trauma? So what led me to that was my own religious transition. So I was LDS. What really got me into this is I went through my own religious transition. I grew up Mormon. I was a really devoted member of that organization. And I liked following the rules. I liked the community. But what happened was I ended up with clinical depression after my first child. And as I was going to therapy and I started being able to name my emotions, I realized like I, I got really comfortable with being able to recognize emotions in my life, being able to name them and being able to trace them to the thoughts that were causing them. Mm -hmm. And as I got better at that, it probably took three or four years after I started seeing a therapist for the first time. So it was 2010 when I started seeing a therapist for the first time I was 30 I would say probably by 2005 I was starting to notice that I got really adept at recognizing fear and shame when it was popping up for me and shame was something I had kind of swam in my entire life and amen yeah right? <laughs> same yeah I think a lot of us do as women, whether we grow up in high demand religion or not, I think it's like in society, there's a lot of expectations and there's a lot of shame about being a woman in our society. And so shame was just, it was so familiar to me. It was really difficult for me to learn to recognize first of all, and then to name. But once I could, I got really good at recognizing when I was feeling shame and then tracing it to what I was thinking or what kind of caused that thought, which caused that emotion. And I was recognizing that at church, I was primarily picking up shame and fear messages. And then I was having to heal from those messages all week long. And so I spent a few years trying to reconcile that. I thought something's wrong with me, of course. I thought that I was just hearing it wrong, that I was like, it was my interpretation was wrong. Something was wrong with me. And then I recognized actually, no, it's just the message itself that this is a common experience for a lot of people, which is when I began to deconstruct my faith and then left the religion that I had been part of for 37 years. Along with my husband, we both deconstructed together. He left for different reasons. So we both had completely different reasons for leaving, but we left at the same time. And then just seeing how traumatic that experience was for us, like two people with bachelor's degrees in psychology, who at that point I'd spent 17 years of my life devoted to studying psychology. And we had conversations about it and it was still a struggle for us and we had a whole community of therapists that were helping us through the ex through this experience we had a lot of support because a lot of our friends are therapists and 
we started recognizing, I, I, I started leading an ex-Mormon group here in Colorado, kind of a community group because it was one of the things I was missing was community and started noticing that we had support or, or things in our lives that maybe other people didn't going through religious transition and that many people didn't like, didn't know how to name their emotions, didn't know how to describe what they were experiencing. And when you don't know how to name or acknowledge your emotions or work through them or even describe what you're experiencing, you can't, you can't work through it. You can't heal it. You can't give yourself what you need. And so you numb it instead. And we were watching a lot of our friends turn to numbing behaviors of, you know, just becoming workaholics or turning to alcoholism or to unsafe sex practices and things like that. So yeah, at that point, I decided to start my Instagram account and just share what I knew. And I ended up, I was coaching a lot of people on the back end. And that's when I decided to get certified as a life coach. Yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Congratulations. Thanks. I love what I do. It is so controversial and I tick people off every single day, but I love, I love doing what I do and it's necessary. Yeah. Yep. And you're yeah. so frank and chipper about it. Like you're, you're in people's face. Like you, you get it. Like, and you're yeah. kind. Yeah. yeah. And you're fun about it. Well, it's this weird thing. I mean, I think a lot of us think of trauma as this really big, heavy thing, which it is, but it doesn't have to be this mopey experience. It can be something that we acknowledge and it's a burden that we're carrying, but we can have fun with it. And it can be an adventure. I actually look at resolving trauma as an adventure. It's a, a chance to get curious with ourselves and explore a landscape that no one else gets to explore, which is our inner landscape and what's going on for us. And it's a, a journey of getting to know ourselves better and learning what our needs are and how to meet those needs. And I think it can be a really beautiful experience. I, I find it really joyful. It's heavy. That's why we need people like you because I'm not finding joy in it right now. <laughs> I, I, guess, I think I can say I'm, I'm kind of finding a little bit of joy. It's, it's yeah. still, it's, you know, it's, it's very heavy, mm -hmm. it's also so freeing and, and it is so fun to like, I feel like I'm getting to know myself so, for the first time. And, yeah. and in, in some of that is this like childlike joy of like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know that was there. And mm -hmm. very neat. Something you said though, uh, maybe think of a question. Oh shoot. Can I rewind you? <laughs> yeah, rewind me. Oh, by the way, I said something wrong earlier. So I, I think I called it the DCM. It's the DSM-5. It's the DSM -5. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition. So, oh. so, you know, I misspoke earlier. Well, we'll stick that over in the other part. <laughs> it's funny. There is like a part of my brain that was like, I think you said that wrong. And so I was like, uh, we have a pause really quick. I can look that I, up. Let me look that up. You said women do. Why do you think it's women? More oh, I have. I have some ideas about why I think it's women. So in our society, women are often socialized to care for other people. And we're not socialized to listen to our own needs. We're not socialized to really listen to our own intuition a whole lot, except with regards to our children, our spouses, our parents, our siblings, our friends. Our intuition is always supposed to help us help other people. And a lot of times our worth comes from our relationships to other people. We're, we're actually socialized that way. Where our worth is, how good of a daughter are we growing up? Like, are we an obedient daughter? Are we a good daughter? Do we bring pride and joy to our, to our parents? 
and then that moves into being a good spouse like how good of a spouse are we are we being a good wife are we supporting our husband our role is always a supportive role which means we're always looking for validation from other people to see if we're doing our roles right if we're good and so shame basically comes from this sense of I need other people to fill this whole shame is the sense of I'm not enough or I'm not good enough just simply for being self-worth is this idea that I have value and worth simply because I exist, not because of anything I do or don't do. So self-worth is this inherent idea that I have value simply because I am. But women are socialized that their worth comes from their relationships with others and how well they perform for other people, which inherently diminishes our self-worth and produces shame. Is there correlation between that and how religion views women and our role and the patriarchy and all that. (laughs) I have a feeling like all of these women issues that we're seeing in society, whether in religion or outside of religion, do stem from religious patriarchy at some point. Because, I mean, all of American infrastructure, really, if we look at it, kind of comes from a religious viewpoint. It all kind of comes from, I mean, even capitalism and some of the other, like, bedrock foundational things come from a religious viewpoint and so yeah I mean it it wouldn't surprise me I haven't done enough research to like actually say yes or no either way but it wouldn't surprise me to dig down deep enough and find that the way we socialize women in America in particular stems back to religious teachings about women's worth their roles that we're not supposed to be leaders, we're not supposed to speak in church or to pray in church, that we need to cover our heads, that we're supposed to be silent, like all of those things that we find in the Bible, along with like if you're in a high demand religion, the extra rules that are put on top of that, that our roles are to bear as many children as we can and, you know, to get married as young as possible and to be good wives and all of that. It would not surprise me to find out that this idea that our worth comes from what we give to others and how we serve others. It's not just inherent in who we are, that that comes from patriarchy. That, that wouldn't surprise me in the least. Well, I remember you saying that. I remember literally learning the acronym JOY, Jesus, Others, Yourself. You always put yourself last. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't, then you aren't serving Jesus. You aren't serving others. You aren't serving the kingdom of God. What you say, high demand religion, what is what is that? Or what's your idea of what's high demand versus high demand religion versus religion? Okay. So high demand religion, whenever I'm talking about that, I don't know if you've ever heard of the bite model. It was developed by uh, Steve Hassan and he's a researcher that he researches cults basically. Mm -hmm. And he talks about control. So high demand religions have high degrees of control. They're very authoritarian and they typically have control in four different areas. That's why it's called the bite model. So the B is for behavior. So there's a lot of control over behavior, over you know who you're allowed to hang out with, what you're allowed to do with your time, how often you need to be at church, the responsibilities you're supposed to carry, all of those sorts of things. I is for information. There's a lot of control over what information you can consume and from which sources and how often you're supposed to be consuming approved information. And then T is for thoughts. There's a lot of control over thoughts. So there's a lot of shame and control over thoughts. And there's a lot of 
having to report to others what your thoughts are and being held accountable by the group for thoughts that are errant. Mm -hmm. And then the E is emotions. There's certain emotions that are okay to feel and other ones that are not okay to feel. So for me in the religion I grew up in, anger was often condemned fear was sometimes condemned even grief sometimes was condemned if you had a loved one die you were given like a certain amount of time it was never prescribed it was never like you have this amount of time to grieve and then you need to be over it but if you weren't over it after you know a little while people felt like you didn't understand the gospel well enough and you should be joyful because they're in heaven and you're going to see them again and so we almost didn't let people really process through normal human emotions yeah i felt like i could have like it was like I had a, a memory attached to each one of those mm-hmm. things that you just mentioned. Yeah. And a lot of us do. And I'm finding, I mean, I came from Mormonism, but I work with clients from all different religious backgrounds. And I'm finding that if they're a high demand religion, the doctrine might be different, but the, the trauma is the same. Mm-hmm. So we all have very similar trauma responses. And a lot of us have very similar, like you said, memories that are triggered by those things. So when I talk to a fundamentalist Christian, for instance, about having to wear Bermuda shorts and having to wear shirts that came to here, they can relate. When I talk to a Jewish woman, she can relate with covering her hair or, you know, needing to wear a dress that came down at least to her knees. So I, you know, different clients can relate it might be different clothing or different rituals, but it was the same concept behind it. Interesting. It same shame. Yeah, same, same shame. <laughs> the same shame. And I think actually, one of, so it doesn't come back to me what I was thinking of before to ask you, but I think it was related to one of our questions of, or just a thought of the religion I was raised in was you're broken in need of a savior. Mm-hmm. You, need, you do need to be fixed. Like you mm-hmm. will always be at, it's like, you're human. So you will always be at fault, flawed. You will never be able to reach, you know, the goal that you're chasing after is perfection, ideally, but, but know that you'll never be perfect, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, it becomes like, it becomes this hamster wheel. And you're right when it comes to Christianity, at least, which is the one I've, you know, the religion that I've studied the most. Some Christians would say being Mormon, I wouldn't understand Christianity. And I get that, but I grew up reading the Old Testament, the New Testament. I have pretty good understanding of what the Bible says. And then I have also this additional, like, Americanized, you know, religious cult thing put on top of it. The basis of it is in the Garden of Eden, man made a bad choice and we fell. And like you said, now we're flawed. We need a savior because we're, we are not good enough to go back to God's presence in the way we are. He can't tolerate sin with the least degree of allowance. And so unless we humble ourselves, unless we put off the natural man, unless we get rid of our carnalness and our evilness and all of that inherent shame inducing stuff that we're told about ourselves, then God doesn't want us. We're not acceptable. We're not lovable. We're not, we're not welcome in his presence because of our now fallen inherently evil nature. And so now we have to have a savior that comes in and saves us from ourselves. And all of this is just one big shame message Mm. that we're not enough as we are and that we're 
we're not valuable in our current state that we need to change in order to be acceptable. We're not yeah. valuable in our current state. Yeah. Is, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's like it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. The basis of it is shame because that is one of the, the base stories of Christianity. And then add on top of that, the whole atonement, the whole, but you know, reservation. Yeah. Somehow. So that's really confusing. I'm like, I'm going through it right now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's so confusing because like you said, on the one hand, we're told we need to, you know, be therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. But then on the other hand, they're like, but you know, we know you're never going to be perfect. Yeah. We know you're always going to be flawed. Just be cool with it. And so it's this really dissonant message that we have in our head and it's really confusing which also is part of the problem because we're feeling shame but we feel like we shouldn't feel shame so we feel shame about our shame yeah and it creates this like whole meta emotion like tornado of shame it's it's yeah. crazy how does shame show up because i find it difficult to trace back like a thought or a feeling directly to shame we were talking earlier and one of the questions we had for you is is judgment one of the ways like fear of judgment or like perceived judgment is that a way of shame showing up it is actually so what happens the opposite of shame is self-worth the opposite of shame is understanding that you're worthy even in our human messiness right we're gonna be equal like we're gonna have good in us we're gonna have strength in us we're also gonna have weakness and mistakes and we're gonna accidentally cause people harm sometimes sometimes we'll cause people harm on purpose because of our own hurt our own whatever else is going on and that we don't lose worth in our messiness that we don't have to be perfect and flawless in order to have worth and value in fact our inherent weirdness, goofiness, like mistakes, our humanness actually makes us more valuable because it's what makes us unique. It's what makes there not be any other Kristen like you on the planet and no other Kim like you and no other Terry like me. We're absolutely individual and unique. There has never been anyone exactly like me. There never will be anyone exactly like me. I am the only manifestation of me that will ever happen. And there may be people that remind you of me, but they won't be me. And so when we understand that it's not just our sameness that makes us valuable, which sometimes is what religion teaches us, that we need to be same, we need to be homogenous, we need to like all have the same values and the same beliefs and, and kind of appear the same way. When we understand that it's like the differences and the quirks and the even the weaknesses that make us so valuable and unique, I think it really helps us root into self-worth. Now, on the opposite side, when we're told that we do need to be the same or that there is a mold that we're supposed to fit and we don't fit in it, shame shows up in a couple of different ways. I find for women in particular, and I know I keep talking to women, if there are men listening, shame does show up for men. Religion does affect men with shame. It is, I know, convenient that I haven't ventured there, but I started with my own experience first, and I'm learning about men. I mean, on my nightstand over there is a, a book all about men and shame. And I'm learning more about that, but I don't feel completely comfortable talking about male experience with shame or people who were socialized to be male. So it's people who are socialized to be female that I feel most comfortable talking about. So that's what I'm going to talk about here. 
But for the women and people socialized to be women that I work with, it typically shows up as perfectionism. So like having Amen. again, <laughs> same <hair. laughs> me too. I had the trifecta. It's perfectionism, people pleasing and overachieving. So please perform perfect. Yeah. So I, oh, it, I mean, so perfectionism, I felt like if I wasn't perfect, I wasn't worthy. I felt like I had to have on a mask. No one could know that inside I sometimes got angry. I sometimes didn't have very kind thoughts about the girl next to me or about my kids or about my husband. Like they could never know that I sometimes had ungodly thoughts or ungodly feelings. And so that, that shame really made me put on this like facade, this mask to protect myself from other people's judgment. And you were talking about judgment. When we're judging ourselves harshly, we also judge other people harshly, but we also assume other people are judging us harshly. Because if we're judging ourselves like this, it makes sense that other people are likely judging us like this as well in our own heads. The more we can root into self-worth and understand our worthiness, what actually happens is we judge other people less. So religion sometimes attacks self-love or self-worth as being vain or prideful. Right. Mm. Yeah. But the problem is, is when we don't have a healthy self-love, when we don't have a healthy respect for ourselves and a healthy acceptance, we end up judging other people to make us feel better about ourselves. And that's really, I think, what we're trying to avoid is this whole arrogance, right? This whole, like, puffed upness that we talk about in the scriptures. Well, and I experience shame and guilt about, like, feeling prideful. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so like, I did a good job or, yep, you know. Well, we're told not to take credit for those things because right. all I'm those things come to, yeah. Like, oh, all the glory to God. Like, I didn't have anything to do with this. This was mm -hmm. a God thing. Yep. Everything good comes from God. Yeah. yeah. So anything good that happens to us or anything we accomplish, any strength that we have, that's all from God. But have you noticed that we're, but we're supposed to be responsible for anything bad that we do. Mm -hmm. So anything bad that happens, any illness, any mental illness, any like any sexual thing that happens to us, it's our fault. And we have to take responsibility for that. So we're not allowed to own the good parts of ourselves, but we have to own the bad parts of ourselves. It's like a recipe for a shame tornado. So, but yeah, it shows up as perfectionism or it shows up as people pleasing. A lot of us have codependent relationships with parents where what we're really doing is we're trying to meet their needs by giving up our own needs, hoping that in return, they'll then fill us up. So we're, we're just, we're looking for validation. We're not serving because it brings us joy. We're serving because we need people to tell us we're a good person mm -hmm. and to like fill up that shame hole that's yeah. left behind. And then overachievement is very similar. So I, I tell people, a lot of people would be like, no, you had awesome self-worth. As a teenager, you were like super confident. You did all these things. You earned all these awards. And I'm like, no, no, no. I had great self-esteem which is I would achieve, I'd get a, a reward. That validation would tell me, okay, I, I can't be that bad. Like I'm a good enough person, I think. Mm. But I'd have to constantly achieve in order to get that hit. It was like a drug. Performance-based. Yes. I actually just read about that. That like, yeah, literally self-esteem, even if it's for yourself, like own self, like no one, you're not doing it for somebody else. You still are doing it to boost that feeling of like, 
I'm doing something good or worthy or bettering myself. And so then, but you're, so then you create the performance for yourself. Yep. You have to achieve because now I don't, I didn't do it. Now I feel terrible. Right. You know, that's usually what happens to me is I don't end up following through and doing it. And then (laughs) I feel shame. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're, we set these huge goals for ourselves and we're like, I'm going to do this and it's going to make me feel good. But it also leads to like overwhelm and exhaustion because if we constantly need that hit of achievement or that hit of approval from other people in order to feel good, we never get to rest because in the rest is when we, it's when we feel the shame. So we don't let ourselves rest because heaven forbid, then we would feel like the grossness inside. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And who wants to actually feel feelings? (laughs) Most of us don't, especially when we've been told that they're dangerous and that they'll take us over. And a lot of us think that we're going to get stuck there. That if we allow ourselves to feel anger, that we will never feel joy again. But feelings are actually pretty short when you allow yourself to feel them. I was just going to say, you create by, you actually get stuck to the feeling by trying not to get stuck to the feeling. Yep. Yep. Because a lot of us thought stop. And so like, we'll start to feel the feeling and we, we stop it. Like, no, 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 that's dangerous. I'm not going to feel anger. I'm not going to feel anger. Mm -hmm. And we like shove it down and it literally waits in our body for us to process it. It doesn't go anywhere, but when we allow ourselves to feel it and just acknowledge it, we're able to say, okay, I feel angry. What am I angry about? Okay. So that's what that is. All right. And it like comes and it crests. It, it's just a messenger. It comes, it delivers its message. And once it's delivered its message, it goes away. But when it doesn't deliver its message, cause we stop it, it will wait until you're ready to hear the message for decades. If it needs to, it'll just hang around, sit there and wait. To deliver yeah. its message. It was described to me as like riding a wave, like, you know, wave builds, 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 and you can stop it and it's going to crash. Or the wave, if the wave doesn't hit resistance, mm-hmm. then it eventually dissipates mm-hmm. and goes back and, and it doesn't cease to exist, but you just ride it out and it comes and goes. But mm-hmm. yeah, the resistance is what hits the wall. Yeah energetically emotions like move through us the energy is meant to move but when we stop it it gets blocked Mm. a lot of my clients will talk about when we actually start doing emotional exercises like somatic exercises where we because a lot of us live up here in our heads because emotions are scary and they we've been told that they'll you know take over our lives and that we'll do awful things when we feel too much anger or we feel too much frustration or loneliness or depression or whatever. And so we, we stay up here and we like just logically think about things and we almost cut ourselves off at the neck from our bodies. And so my clients, when we're first like sinking down into our body to fill, a lot of people will get stuck right here in their throat area when we're doing some meditations and they'll, you know, they'll be like, I, I can't go any further. It's too scary. I had one client tell me, she was like, it feels like a hoarder's house. Like, I feel like it's stuffed full of stuff and it's really scary. I don't know if there's like rats in any of the boxes or like things I don't want to deal with that have been rotting there for a long time. And so just understanding that we have the control when we're going back and we're processing emotions, we have control to open up one box, look at one emotion for a little bit of time. And when, I mean, I even have people set timers sometimes. I'm like, we're just going to look at this for 30 seconds and then we're going to close up the box and you get to come back up to your safe place. Okay. So we're just going to go down there and we're just going to 
like expose ourselves to it. Yep, we're just gonna go and show that you can survive it for 30 seconds and then we'll come back up. And then we'll go down a little bit longer next time, maybe for a minute. And slowly you just start to unpack the boxes just like those hoarder shows where I'm the support there helping you like actually open the box, figure out what you wanna keep and what you don't wanna keep and like make sense of the junk. And then slowly it becomes a much safer space to inhabit. So for many of us- room, You have more space to hold those feelings. They're not all stuffed in yeah. together. Yeah. yeah. Well, and a lot of them are old baggage that once you process, it just goes away. Like once you've looked at it, you've acknowledged it, like you've got this like old emotion in there from when you were five, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, you know what? I see you. You were really hurt whenever you didn't win the spelling bee and your parents dismissed you and they didn't comfort you the way you needed. I see you. And that was really hard and it was lonely. And it's like the emotions like, thank you for listening to me. And it goes away. It's mm -hmm. floating away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, for sure. So what are some things that we can do to help us talk back to shame and recognize it and talk back to it? Yeah. Okay. So we'll start first with recognizing shame. So what shame feels like was a great place for me to start whenever I was trying to get used to naming shame because it was the air I breathed. I, I often compare it to, I was in a room with a bunch of people and I was like in a fishbowl full of water. So I was seeing the same room that everybody else was, but everything was distorted because I was seeing everything through that water. And I couldn't describe the water to you because that was just my atmosphere. It would be the same as us, like being really aware of the air that we're breathing on any given moment. And so the first thing I did was paying attention to the physiological like sensations in my body that shame creates. I, I often have clients go back and visit a time when they felt really embarrassed or humiliated, like one that feels safe enough that you can tolerate and just pay attention to what your body does. Do your hands get sweaty? Do you get that pit in your stomach? Do you feel like shrinking? You know, does your face get red? Do you get shaky? Those are often you know, symptoms of shame or guilt or embarrassment or humiliation, which are all kind of in that same family. Gotcha. Um, they all mean different things, but they all have very similar physiological responses. And just being able to cue into my heart's beating fast, or I've got shaky hands, or I just want to like disappear. Mm -hmm. I want the earth to swallow me up. So paying attention to our physiological emotions, just being aware is the first one. When you're very first starting this, it might not come naturally. So you might want to set an alarm on your phone and just do a full body check-in. I had an alarm on my phone that would happen two or three times a day. And I would just do a full body check-in. How, how is my body feeling right now? What am I experiencing in my body? Just getting used to like reminding myself to tune in to what's going on with my body because so many of us, like I said, have dissociated. We, we live up here and we have like cut ourselves off from our bodies. So just reminding myself to get back in. Once I notice what's going on in my body, just getting curious with ourselves without the judgment. Whatever's happening, emotions are not good or bad. They just are. They're just messengers. They're just delivering messages from our inner knowing. And so getting curious with those, what does this feeling mean? What is it trying to tell me? And if you don't get anything the first few times, that's fine. It's, it's a learning process. So just allowing yourself to sit with it. And what, what do I feel 
what do I feel about this? What is it trying to tell me? What, you know, where is it at in my body? Like, because often whenever we really pay attention, we'll notice like, oh, it's sitting in my stomach or it's here in my shoulders. It's, that's where the tension is. And, you know, just giving it some care and paying attention to it and just saying, hey, I'm here for you. Like, tell me what you need to tell me. I'm listening. So just really listening to our emotions. So tuning in, then listening. And then from there, shame needs three things to grow exponentially. It's like a mold. It likes the dark. So shame needs secrecy, silence, and judgment, according to Brene Brown. So it likes to, it, it wants no one else to know about it. Mm-hmm. And it needs that judgment that we have about it to feed. But if we have someone that we trust, someone that we know will listen to us without judgment, someone that loves us dearly and won't add to the shame that we can actually talk to about this, shame already diminishes by at least half just by speaking it out loud. So just by saying, hey, I just did something and I feel like the biggest idiot. And that's another big thing I wanna point out is shame is different than guilt. Guilt is actually healthy and helps us grow shame actually keeps us small and it keeps us from growing. So shame is I am bad. Guilt is I did something bad or I did something that's out of alignment with my values. Gotcha. So let's say you do something stupid. You, you know, say something that you wish you hadn't have said to somebody. If your response is, I can't believe I did that. I hate that I hurt that person. That's guilt. And it's going to make you want to go and apologize and make amends. But if your response is, I am such an idiot, I am the worst person in the world, that's shame. Mm-hmm. And that, because it is us, it makes us not want to tell anyone. It makes it really hard for us to be accountable. It makes it really hard for us to own our part. But if we have a person we can talk to and just say, hey, I did this thing and I feel so bad about it. And to have somebody say, hey, like, you didn't hurt them on purpose. Like you're a good person who just did something that was hurtful. You're still valuable. I still love you. What can we do to fix, to fix the issue? Mm-hmm. That helps dissipate the shame really more than anything else. It's the best first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I'm learning about self-compassion and mm-hmm. basically doing that exact thing, but for yourself. Mm-hmm. So, so if I, if I'm unable, if I don't have access to my therapist or my sister or something, mm-hmm. some safe place to process that, that I can go and I can literally be like that as if I would to my sister or a good friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was really hard. You're, you're, you know, you're okay. Like your feelings are, okay. you're human. Yeah. I've made those mistakes or, you know, you're not the first person or, or mm-hmm. whatever it is that you might say to someone in that moment or comfort them, you get to sit and you can give that exact same kindness to yourself, but it's such a, such a foreign concept for us that we would deserve that or how to give that care. It's like, it took me a few times to practice that, to actually like understand it because it was so, yeah, to really feel it and to make the connection. Yeah. Yeah. How how that's done or or what, how it serves me, I guess. Yeah. And that's our goal is to be able to do the self-compassion thing when we're in shame, to be able to sit with ourselves and say, hey, you did your best. It didn't, your, your impact did not match your intent, but you did your best. And it makes sense why that happened. 
and like giving yourself some compassion and validation so that you can then go make amends if you need to, or, you know, fix whatever the problem is. That is definitely the goal. And it is hard whenever, you know, we've been taught things like God can't look at sin with the least degree of allowance to allow ourselves compassion. So it is definitely a learned skill that takes a lot of practice. The struggle with like being told for so long that like what's in your body, like to not listen to what's happening into your body can be really conflicting when you are learning to, or, or this is what it is. The realization that really everything is about you. You know what I mean? That even the action to care for another person is really about your need, you know, being met and, and how you want to show up in your values that can be really difficult to reconcile and, and, and accept the feelings that might come with it just because of your conditioning. Yeah. Even though you know it is in alignment with your values, something is telling me this is wrong. And then the other part of me is like, no, on my experience, if I really listen to what my inner knowing is telling me that no, this is in alignment with my values, but religion told me no, you know? Mm-hmm. And so these feelings show up that that end up making me think, oh, maybe this isn't right. Maybe this isn't me. Maybe this isn't my value. Yeah. They're so conflicting. Yeah. Well, and we get those messages at church, right? To lean not to your own understanding, like trust God in all of thy paths and lean not to your own understanding. And it tempts you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like sex and drinking and, you know, don't listen to any of those things. Don't be unequally yoked. Yep. Yep. Don't be unequally yoked. Like there's all these evil like temptations and you can't trust your own appetites. You can't trust your own desires because desire usually means bad. Yep. Even if it's something that could propel you towards the kingdom of God, you're so afraid of desire. (laughs) Yeah. You're afraid of your own desires and your own passion. Passion is also another trigger word that can mean really bad things. Like being passionate about something can be, you know, bad. And so, yeah, learning to trust yourself. And I often tell people, so I was just in a a Facebook group yesterday where somebody said something along the lines of, I don't know if my feelings are trying to tell me something or if I'm just being a pansy because I don't like change. And I'm like, you know, if I'm, if I'm just doing it wrong, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I stepped in and I was like, regardless of whether it's fear of change or If it's, you know, some other feeling that you're feeling, like if it's your inner knowing coming in and saying, hey, this isn't a good fit for me, regardless, whatever emotion is coming up is valid. Yeah. So there are no invalid emotions. It shows up. You didn't have control over that. You didn't, you didn't tell your body to do that or not do that. I'm sorry. I have to answer my door. I love it. (laughs) Sorry about that. And no worries. Or no. Yeah, we're all busy working moms. I get it. Yeah, making it work. Delivering cats and <laughs> doing podcasts. <laughs> Women are amazing. We do we're all this stuff things. all at once. <laughs> Can you imagine a man doing this? I don't think so. Like delivering yeah. a cat, watching kids and doing their work. I was sitting talking to my husband during the pandemic and I was like, you do realize I meet with people just like you do, but I don't do it in an office and I do it while running kids to appointments and possibly having them at home or not having them at home. And he was like, oh, I was like, that's what I mean by mental load. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I was telling somebody, I, I often think about how women, the stigma of women, women, female drivers that are bad. I'm like, because we are toting the kids all the time while trying to call the doctor and cancel the other appointment because of your sick kid and make the appointment for sometimes your spouse mm-hmm. or whatever and pay the bill while you're headed to the grocery store to get back to the pick up your kid from class or something, you know, and it's like, we're just, yeah, yeah, we are better. We're not, we're bad, bad drivers. We're distracted and overloaded. And we have people yelling at us and calling us and screaming at us and like, Fighting in the backseat. Yeah, fighting in the backseat. Yeah. You're throwing French fries and saying, shut up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Find a drive. <laughs> yeah, when we first left High Demand Religion, I mean, my husband was pretty amazing. I think that's part of the reason I lasted as long as I did is he was like, we had as equal of a partnership as I think we could have with the in- indoctrination that we had. And when we left, that was part of like me waking up and realizing, wait a second, like I'm not cool with this. And I live in a house full of boys, like all men. Um, And I was like, I, we're, we're going to sit down and have some talks. I was like, and I'm responsible too, because I've perpetuated this because I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. I was like, but I am not the house slave. Mm -hmm. I am not in charge of everybody's mess. I am not in charge of your schedule. I'm not in charge of your homework. I am not in charge of like all of your appointments. He's feeding you every meal. Like if I'm not around, I shouldn't have to go out of my way to make sure that there was food for you. Like figure, I have to figure it out. You know, yeah. like, I have to figure out how to feed myself if no one's around. You yeah. Too. Yeah. So we all sat down and we had a family meeting and I was like, okay, this is what I don't want anymore. I will not live like this anymore. And they were like, okay. So I said, I, you know, if you don't do your job, I'm not going to come back, like come behind you and pick it up. Like we'll deal with the mess. We'll have another family meeting and I'll be like, Hey, just like one of your roommates at college, like this is not acceptable. When are you picking that up? I was like, we're going to deal with this. Like we're a co-op. So we sat down. I'm like, all of us are old enough here to do our part. And it was so nice. I just asked, what do you guys want to do? Like, how do you want to contribute to the family? What is your part? And now it's so nice because my kids come home and if they're not doing their homework or whatever. It ain't your, you don't have to, you don't have to go into overdrive to fix it yep. or to manage it or yeah. buffer the emotions that come with it or. Yep. We do a lot of natural consequences now. So we'll sit down with his, you know, my oldest will sit down with his online report of what's turned in and what's not. And I'm like, so what, how do you feel about this? It's not me lecturing him. I'm like, how do you feel about this? And yeah. he's like, oh, I didn't realize I was missing so many assignments. I'm like, okay, what do you think happened to get this result? Like what got in the way of you turning things in? Oh, okay. H- how are you going to manage that? Mm-hmm. So just guiding him to learn to manage himself instead of me being like, okay, so every day I'm going to tell you blah, blah, blah. And we're going to do this. And I'm going to check in with you. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, once a week, I'm like more controls, which wears them out and exhausts your relationship, exhausts you. Mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I actually sat down and told them all about mental load. When I learned about it, I was like, all right, men, we're going to sit down. I learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I was like, so there's a, a term called mental load and a lot of women carry it in their family. And I did not know that that's what that was called. That, that like overwhelm exhaustion. My mind is constantly going. 
and this is what's happening. I was like, you guys look at me as the manager in the house. Like you're happy to help out, but I have to like tell you what I need. Mm -hmm. This is not my house. This is our house. Mm -hmm. So I need you to like take your jobs and just do them. Don't make me the manager. I should get paid extra for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Will you come have a meeting at my house? (laughs) (laughs) You know. I'm turning this whole household into feminists. They're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> that's amazing though. That's yeah. Cool. Yep. That's cool. Okay. So we were kind of talking about, we were talking about trusting ourselves yes, and how it's really own. hard to trust our own emotions. Yeah. And I don't know, there was this meme yesterday where it was a person talking to Jesus and it was like everything, every choice I made always was trying to be a reflection of you and everything I decided I ran it through you first and I never listened to my own like intuition my own body my own self and it was just so poignant oh did I tag you in that no I didn't that I don't think you did one. for that one that was a different... yeah you did tag me in another one it's interesting that you bring that up because I'm studying codependency pretty deeply as I write my book and it's, we have, so many of us have a codependent relationship with the Jesus that we're talked that we're taught about. Yeah. He, many of us are taught a narcissistic Jesus that doesn't want us to have a will of our own or a life of our own. Like it all has to be about him. We have to spend our time praising him and meeting his needs, meeting his expectations and running, like asking for permission to live almost. You're when you're good, condemned when you're bad. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a very narcissistic, codependent relationship that many of us have with Jesus. In in you, you need me to be strong where you are weak. Yep, yep. And so what you were just describing feels very much like that where we don't get to trust ourselves. And that happens a lot for victims of like narcissistic relationships here with spouses and with parents and stuff is that you learn not to trust yourself because you always have to take into account what the narcissist wants you to do so that you don't get punished. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not like we were talking earlier today. And one of the questions we're going to ask you is like, and this kind of goes down to it is there's really no such thing as free will when it comes to, I guess, God, Jesus. We're told about free will at the same time it, She's like, it doesn't be like somebody holding a gun to your head and saying, you have a choice. You can live or die. You have a choice. It's it's fine. You can make whatever choice you want. Like, it's okay. But if you walk away, I'm going to shoot you in the head. But you can still make that. You still have free will to make that choice. I want you to know that it is your choice. I can't take that away from you, whether you live and die. You know? And it's like, it's so manipulative. It is. It's really manipulative. And it's funny that you use the gun to the head because that's what I would have used as well, the same. Like, I mean, if if somebody comes and holds a gun to your head and then you were to go to court about whatever you chose to do under duress, you would be forgiven for whatever choice you made with that gun to your head because your life was in danger. You were threatened with death. I mean, the same thing happens with people who are tortured and survive, like in, you know, prisoner of war camps and stuff. When you're tortured, you try to hang, like hold out as long as possible, but your life is being threatened. Yeah. It's either give up the information or experience a lot of pain. Yeah. 
I was just saying, and, and that's part of in the denial that we are actual, like we do have instinct that takes over biologically, you know, mm-hmm. but in Christianity, we deny that, you know, it's all spiritual. It's all your heart. It's all, it's all in your control. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's, I mean, and I, I, I want to make concessions. I have learned in the last four years that there are people that do have what I would consider healthy relationships with God. But I find, at least in my experience, and maybe I just attract a whole bunch of people who have been in really authoritarian, high-demand religions to me, that is very possible. But in my experience, it's the minority of people that actually have a healthy relationship with God. Most of us have a either a codependent or an abusive or a codependent abusive relationship with God. I'd say I met somebody, I, I can say, I think I know someone who I would say has a healthy relationship with God. It's very, very personal to her and she doesn't talk about it a lot. And it's like really interesting, but she also is somebody who started getting me down this like, well, she had this nice, this beautiful like foundation and like, and connection with herself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God can look like that. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, this is interesting. And, and she seems very healthy and like, and, and she accepts the faults and flaws of, human nature and not everything is like sin and not sin and you know in her mm-hmm. mind or at least that's how I portrayed how she speaks and stuff and yeah it was really interesting it definitely got me questioning some things you know like oh it, yeah it can be like that you know yeah I've had some people that are like yeah so I've had some people that are like you just hate God and you hate religion I'm like no 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 I hate toxic relationships with God and I hate toxic religion and I will speak out very very vehemently about those things but I am learning that there are people that do have those healthy relationships I am finding that if you come from an unhealthy relationship with God that you there's a detox process you have to go through before even exploring a healthy relationship with God for most people and I compare that to being let's say you were in a relationship, like an actual marriage with a narcissist, Mm -hmm. every single person, every therapist, your family, your friends would all ask you to take some time and find yourself and heal before you got, like even tried to have a relationship with another person. But we don't do the same thing with God. You get out of a toxic relationship with God and I can't tell you how many people have been like, no, come see my God, come have a relationship with my God. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I've had a lifetime relationship with someone that has been like, kind on the outside, abusive on the under underside. I need to find me and figure out what I actually want and what kind of relationship would be healthy for me before I even decide to explore that. And that's healthy. That's okay. Yeah. I can relate to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I have people that are like, so are you atheist? Like, what are you? And I'm like, right now I'm healing, which means I'm uncertain. I don't know right now. I'm just healing. Yeah, I'm actually enjoying not having an answer. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't need to know. Yeah. I'm like, that's, yes. I find peace and like, I don't have to have an answer, you know? And I don't have to, I don't have to answer. I don't have to answer for you. I don't have to answer it for me. I don't have to know. And I'm okay with that, you know? And- yeah, it's really freeing when you get to that place. It's so freeing when you're like, I don't know. And I don't have to know. And it's okay. Yeah. yeah. I think- one of our guests, Lisa, mm-hmm. said her parenting style or her life, like what she's, what she would explain as life right now is evolving, just constantly evolving. Yeah. Well, and I think that's how it should be actually mm-hmm. for all of us, because okay. as we have greater understanding, 
like as we learn things, our understanding evolves. Yeah. And if our understanding ever quits evolving, it means we've quit learning, we've quit growing. And like at, at that point, like what are we doing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. That seems boring to me. <laughs> well, that's where you get, well, but I don't know, to me, to, for me, yeah, growth is my spirituality, it's my purpose, you know, like, yeah, it's where I find joy and fulfillment and connect with the world, you know, and in myself, connect with myself, maybe. And, um, yeah. Yeah, and I always think of Groundhog's Day, the movie. Mm. It was actually something that when I was still an active member of my church that was actually really problematic for me. It was one of the first things that I really started critically thinking about. I was watching Groundhog's Day, I want to say in like 2016, so February of 2016, and he's living the same day over and over and over and over again. And I, there's a line in there. He's like, maybe God doesn't know everything. Maybe he's just been around for so long that, you know, he knows what's going to happen. And I started thinking about God's existence. Like if he had lived forever, like how boring would that be if you live forever and every day was the same. And I had been taught in my religion that we would learn and grow. But at some point, if we believe that God is an all knowing being and knows everything at some point you reach knowing everything. And I'm like, and then at that point, you're still going to live for eternity. And I don't think we wrap our heads around Mm -hmm. how long that is to live without growth, knowing everything. And I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Cause, and, and I, yeah, I was taught once you get to heaven that you do just know you have all the answers. Yeah. And you get to live the rest of your life. Yeah. With no growth. And I'm like, I would want to go to hell at some point just for a change of scenery. <laughs> just check it out. I mean, I, it's gotta be something different down there. I'm gonna research on. it. I heard they can drink. <laughs> I heard they have rock and roll music down there. Right. So. I mean, you're like, burning and searing pain but at this point that sounds not so bad <laughs> you're like at least i'd be feeling something because right yeah. i'm kind of numb <laughs> something's different <laughs> yeah 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 so once i like actually allowed myself to think about that i was like that sounds like hell to me to not be growing and to just be stuck like that in limbo for eternity <laughs> like yeah. yeah i was like hell's not looking so bad now at this point <laughs> That's interesting. I haven't thought about that, but yeah, that is true. Oh, the things that cinema can do for us, right? Right. Watching a movie and suddenly you're like, wait a second. Yeah. My whole existence is now being questioned. (laughs) And a a movie like Groundhog's Day, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like totally a comedy. It's just like one of those light bulb moments where I was like, wait. But see, those, I struggle with some of those light bulb moments because I'm like, oh, you know, where that's where my mind wants to go. Oh, God is showing me this. And, and so now, like, it's because partially I just have an aversion to thinking that. So I'm like, I, I feel like I need to change that thought to like, oh, wait, it's the universe or it's just life or it's, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just letting it be a thought that's there, you yeah. know, yeah. But, it's, but I know, and, and I'm so aware of those thoughts now and seeing how often they show up in places. Yeah. 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 Working through that is been interesting. I bet. Yeah. For me, I, I have a saying in my head where I'm like, huh, that's a curious thought. Like just recognizing that I don't have to own the thought that I can have a thought that I can discard if I want. And so I'm just like, huh, 
So that's a curious thought. And it allows me to kind of like look at it from all of its different angles and then decide, is that a thought I want to keep or is that one I want to discard? Like, yeah. I don't know. So do I want to act out of that or do I just want to let it pass through? Yeah. Or yeah. explore it more. Or explore it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Very fascinating. Was there anything else on shame? Did we get through all of the points? Yeah, we got through like the main three parts that I was wanting to get through, which was what is it? What causes it? How do we start moving through it? Yeah. And I love that you brought up self-compassion as well, because that's a topic I could talk on for a long time as well. I feel like I could talk your ear off forever, but I won't because I know you have things I to do. Questions and I could talk about it forever. I know. <laughs> we're going through it, you know. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I think that this is important to have conversations like this. Yeah. Super important. So thank you for having one of those super important conversations. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. And it was so nice to get to meet you, Kim. And fun to get to see you like face to face. I know, Kim. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. so we'll have all of your Facebook group and your podcast and all of that up on the show notes. For awesome. People to find you because you've been helpful, so helpful through this process. And so. Fantastic. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Frank and Chipper. We appreciate all of you taking the time to listen. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. These help us get seen. They get these stories heard. And hopefully these stories are helping people. Because here at Frank and Chipper, we believe every story matters. Remember to go to the Facebook community and put your thoughts and comments and questions that you may have for Kim and I, or that you may have had for Terry that you want us to talk about in Chip Chat. So remember to do that. Facebook group, it's at Frank and Chipper. And until next time, be enlightened, live your best life, and always stay Frank and Chipper.